The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Sometimes a wild god comes to the table. He is awkward and does not know the ways of porcelain, of fork and mustard and silver. His voice makes vinegar from wine. Those were the opening words to Sometimes a Wild God, read by the author and my guest today on the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This season of the podcast is brought to you by The Threshold Community, a new collaboration between me and my dear friend, Holly Trular. We're gathering online with like-minded, collapse-aware people to tend the threshold of the twilight times of the world as we've known it. Read all about it at thethresholdcommunity.com and find us on Instagram at Tending the Threshold. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the show, I'm absolutely delighted to share with you a conversation with the poet and author, Tom Hirons. Now, this is the time when I'm supposed to read you his bio and tell you all about his works, but to be frank, there is no introduction that can really explain what happens when a poet seizes your life. And unless it's happened to you, you might not believe that the reading of a poem could change the trajectory of your life or the way you live. But what I am telling you is true. And if you've never heard the poem, Sometimes a Wild God, then this conversation is good prologue. And if you're not familiar with some of Tom's other works, such as Nettle Eater or Falconer's Joy, which we go into in some detail, then this will help you arrive to the works with heart and mind prepared. And if you are arriving to this conversation already, like me, an ardent fan of Tom's works, then you're welcome. Here's my conversation with Tom Hirons. So Tom, what identities do you lead with? What identities do I lead with? Um, I've heard you ask this question a couple of times. And I think for me as, uh, well, for a number of reasons, it's not a question that I'm, I'm used to really working with. And I suspect a lot of that is because I'm a 47 year old white hetero male and I don't have to work with it. But also thinking about it, I was thinking you ask a poet and a storyteller about identity and you're really asking for the longest I am poem in the history of podcasts. So, um, so we've, I, how long have we got? Oh, yeah. an, hour, an hour, two hours. I can keep it going probably for about a week. Um, I'm feeling on form. Um, but I, I was thinking, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm less interested in that kind of identity that you might be able to put down in a kind of straight line kind of way than thinking about it in a in a poetic sense mm. you know what what is it that i'm trying to do and obviously there's a clue i've given already um i'm a writer i'm a storyteller on a good day i might claim to be a poet um and what i think i'm really identifying as when i'm thinking in those terms is some kind of tracker some kind of listener someone who's interested in the kind of truth that if you approach it head on through straight line kind of language it gets hidden or it gets scared and runs away hmm. so i'm one of those slant wise truth tellers uh, and hopefully a listener as well and sometimes i track well you know, it's a good day and sometimes i don't track so well either with my speech or my listening so i think i would identify as an apprentice to that kind of hmm. craft or art, uh, whichever, or both it might be. Um, and that's primarily who I am in the context of mm. our conversation here today. But as I say, I'm also a 47-year-old white hetero male, father of two young boys, one was five and a half, and one will be two in December. I was brought up in East Anglia, rural East Anglia in the UK, uh, a nice, pretty gentle part of the world. Uh, and then lived for about 20 years in Scotland, hmm. lived, lived on the road in a traveling storytelling theater, an old truck with my partner Rima, hmm. and now we've settled in South Devon, not far from Dartmoor, hmm. which is where I've just got back from a few days ago, 
seven days of wild camping by myself. And if you ask me who my identity is when I'm out there, it would be a very different kind of thing. But you've got me in my more or less civilized <laughs> civilized. So I will say, you know, rather humble, humble, I think, to call yourself a, an apprentice, because there are plenty of, you know, folks that we could maybe describe as storytellers who approach, you know, kind of sidling up sideways and that sort of thing. But um, what's really exceptional about your work for me is that uh, even though you're tracking and not going directly at a thing, I never feel disoriented or discombobulated. Whereas there are plenty I'm, I'm, of folks. I should try harder. <laughs> <laughs> I must try harder just for you. I'm going to write you a poem just to discombobulate you. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be very excited then by it, by, you know, cause there's, there's, there are plenty of people who, um, discombobulate then I guess with far less charm and uh, ah, well, wisdom you're, than you're you very do. Kind. You're, you're too kind. I am, um, I know some, I know some and know of more really good poets mm. and great storytellers. Mm. And so my, my standards are very, very high. Mm. Um, and it's good for me to know, to kind of know my place. Mm. Um, you know, it, yeah, it keeps me at least with a semblance of humility. Mm, mm. So I was first introduced to your work, probably like many people, with your um, seminal poem, Sometimes a Wild God. And uh, I would love to know how that poem came to you. Okay, how did that poem come to me? Um, well, when we start talking about where where poems come from or how that came about or what that means or what all of that kind of thing we're we're kind of using quite invasive language about something which is is quite subtle, but there are things that I can say about it that don't um, don't do it um, do it harm in any way the poem um, I had been carrying around this line. Uh, uh, however it begins, sometimes a while God comes to the table um, because I thought I'd read this line somewhere and I thought this is a fantastic line I have to, you know, I thought maybe I'd read, maybe I'd read it in I Am John or some, you know, some uh, rag and bone drop of the heart or something like that because um, it sounded like that kind of territory and I couldn't find it I kept looking for it over a period of two, maybe three years and I couldn't find it. And eventually I was like, shit, maybe it doesn't actually exist yet. And in which case I'm going to have to write this thing. Um, I'm going to have to pull on that thread or follow that thread down into the cave and see what happens. Um, and, and so I did. And it was actually part of a, a series of poems, um, which um, some of which saw the light of day in a thing called the Journal of Mythic Arts. I don't know if you ever came across that. Um, Terry Windling and uh, Midori Snyder, um, uh, who I could tell a very long story about how that, that publication was, how Rima and I got together in the first place and how I ended up on Dartmoor, but I'm not gonna tell you that. Um, uh, so this series of poems was about different deities arriving in the home or in your life or all of this thing and so uh, I'd written one about uh, Apollo it was uh, an awful poem it was really really very bad and I, I wasn't that into it I was trying to trying to I wasn't really into Apollo at the time I was much more into the kind of tangled roots of things mm -hmm. and then I wrote one about Hermes um, uh, yeah a very shady angry poem and then I thought I better write about, um, about, about the wild because I've got this, um, this, line, this line here that I need to tug on. And so I sat down one evening and um, drank some Guinness and wrote the poem and pretty much in a one um, wow. I did an edit a few days later, put it up on the blog that I had and kind of, that was it really, a few people. I, I had a, a wide audience of about 12 or 15 people at that stage and I put the poem up and that was that for, for months and months. Um, 
Wow. And then did it go on the Dark Mountain project? Is that, that did was it have an, an association that, there? That happened a little bit later, yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but they were, it was their third book, I think. Uh, yeah, the, the third book, I, I put that and Metal Eater, mm -hmm. um, early, an early version of Metal Eater into that, um, because we'd been, Rima had done the cover for their second book, and we'd ended up going to the, the strange little festival that they held called Uncivilization. Um, and because I wanted a, I didn't want to pay to get in, um, <laughs> I, I said I'd do some storytelling. Uh, and that was kind of the start of a whole relationship with Dark Mountain and a kind of uh, a different kind of uh, mood change for my storytelling as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I bet they there's a they strike a certain mood, right? And and I and I really resonate with it. So I think it was sort of through that association that I I first became aware of the poem, or or it came through you know the ether through there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm sure that you have had many people say, you know, how wrecked they've been by this poem <laughs> in like a, in a great way. But honestly, the first oh. time we read it, my husband and I, I can't remember if he found it and read it out loud to me or I found it and read it out loud to him. I think he might have read it out loud to me. He has a very deep, mellifluous voice. And mm. uh, I mean, we were both just bawling. Like we couldn't, you know, get get through it and it really and and it came to me in my 39th year at my 40th birthday party we all the theme was wild gods and goddesses because based on this poem and so everybody showed up i had these massive deer antlers and kind of you know this wild it's a goddess. wonderfully dangerous theme for a party <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and for a woman turning 40. <laughs> so it was very Fantastic. apt and uh, yeah, Ruben read that poem aloud uh, to me, for me, and for everyone. And it just, you know, and it wrecks the crowd. You go from 80s music to sometimes a wild god, but it was so fantastic. People, you know, couldn't get enough. And so now when, mm. I, when I buy it, I buy it in stacks of 10 to give it oh, away. Um, I'm curious though, how, what's the most common response that you see? Uh, from people who first hear that poem? People cry. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I, I don't often get to see people's response. Um, uh, I don't often read it out. Um, uh, but people write to me a lot with how it's affected them and it, it makes people cry either for uh, for what they've lost uh, usually for what they've lost you know, there's a grief that, that comes in um, at a particular point in the poem for a lot of people um, or there's the joy of recognition of someone writing about something that they have not found articulated somewhere else um, and it's a you know it's a great great delight and a great honor to hear those things being said about something which I've been involved in um, and very moving um, people have have this strong relationship with it mm -hmm. well you can't pretend to be normal anymore you know it's one of these poems you read it and if it's calling you out it's calling you out and if it's naming your deepest sorrow I mean, you're a little embarrassed because everybody knows now and you can't <laughs> try to go back to any other way of being anymore. It kind of undoes you in the way that's like, well, I guess I have to start living now. <laughs> this, this I, I, thought we, I thought we were done. I thought we were done with, with hiding. <laughs> so, so, you know, to be, to be honest about that particular kind of ancient, that kind of wound which which touches a place that feels so ancient um i thought that was common knowledge mm. so um so for me it was a, a lot of the poem is just is kind of stating the obvious mm. um but but some kind of accidental things have happened along the way in the way the poem has come together that gives it this 
and uncanny power. Um, and I really don't feel that an awful lot of that has to do with my skill as a poet. Um, I was very good at listening on the day that that poem was about and needed someone to write it down. Um, and that is skill of ear and heart um, being able to put myself in a position where the, the words can come in kind of down my fingers or through my ears and head and all of that. Um, yeah. Hmm. So that was one of those good days when you might call yourself a poet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, but, but I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, and I wrote that in 2012, I think it was, and I've learned a lot more about how to be a good poet since then, but I don't think I've necessarily written any good poems in the last <laughs> eight years. There have been a couple that have been, been all right and a couple that I think are better than sometimes a wild god, um, but I'm very much still learning. I've, I've, I'm, I'm lucky I've got, um, I've got a silver tongue and I'm a good listener mm. and that takes me a long way. But when I read about how other poets work, um, it's like, wow, you're engaged in some amazing, amazing craft while you're doing this. And, and mm. a lot of that's still a total mystery to me. Mm. Um, I'm reading a beautiful book by Glyn Maxwell at the moment called On Poetry. Um, the, by far the best book about writing poetry that I've come across. And it's just heartbreakingly honest in points mm. and very, very beautiful and very skillful. Um, and there's a lot in there where I think, oh my God, you, you've really thought about this shit. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am just kind of going, oh, I'll listen. I'll mm. put my kind of ear to the universe and see what comes in and then kind of try and make it look like a poem. So, I, you know, I, as you can see, there's a little imposter syndrome, but <laughs> that's, that, that's okay um, mm. because the field of poetry is so wide and um, varied and fertile that you can get away with pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. As a listener then, at the moment, what's your favorite line or section of that poem? Uh, it's, usually, it's pretty much always the same one, actually. Um, so uh, I've, I've got the book here. I was just saying to you before we started recording that we've just had a delivery of the new print run and it's beautiful um, so I'm just yeah here we go it's this one um, so the, the, the stanza is the wild god points to your side you're bleeding heavily you have been bleeding for a long time possibly since you were born there is a bear in the room and this is this is the one which isn't necessarily the most relevant to my life, but it's the one that has um, has kick to it or, or talk, you know, in the sense of that interesting thing. That's how I think of kind of the, the force of, of poetry is, um, is talk. It's talk. Um, yeah. Um, and that is the one where you, uh, when I do read it and I can see people, that's the one where you can just see something happen inside. And that's the one which I'm starting to understand the, the poem as a, a kind of spell, the way it uh, does this kind of corkscrew thing going deeper down. And that's the, there's a big twist there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that for sure. <laughs> for sure. And then <laughs> right cry. after that. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> do, can do feel cry. the talk in my on. guts right now. I can feel it just twisting. And it's true. It's true. That's the one where you just, you get pretty wrecked pretty instantly. And, you know, if you get it, there's no going back after that. That's the stating of the obvious, the thing that you were talking about. It's like, I thought everybody knew. I thought everybody, mm. you know, but you, yeah, kind of point to this beautiful, um, physiological experience it's interesting because that line that section does have a biological rightness to it even if a person doesn't understand what else is happening mm. in the poem there's a biological rightness to it that you feel in your body yeah well, well there's there's a just a 
a little background there because what I didn't say in, in who I am and my identity because it's not part of who I am right now. I'm an acupuncturist as well. <laughs> so my um, my training is in Chinese medicine. So as a stanza just after that or just before that where we're talking about the unnameable beasts in your um, kidneys and the heart and the liver. Um, and in Chinese medicine, these these are they're not unnameable beasts. They they have names. The hun, the, the zhe, they're the spirits of these particular organs. And so when I'm talking about that, I'm not just using you know fancy metaphorical language. As far as I'm concerned, I'm just again talking about something that that is. Um, and so I think that that kind of sense of there, there being a reality there and not just a metaphor comes from that. Hmm, that's so beautiful. Right. So you are naming something that people have actually known for a long time and given these names with these animal figures. And yeah, that's amazing. That's beautiful. And so sneaky. It's so sneaky. Thank you yeah. for revealing at least one of your magician's tricks here. <laughs> I'm only revealing on that one so that I can obscure <laughs> others. And you sitting there do you know these things look at that world beyond your door your life is on fire run dive in though it surely means death taste the streams the heather and the gorse and the broom. Hold the river stones. Sleep with the waterfall as your pillow. Braid yourself to the horse's mane. Sing the great lament of your own lost life. In time, Scar yourself with fire and stone. Immerse yourself in such immovable darkness that the lightning cracks you in two. You were never more lost than you are now. If you cannot reach out, touch the wild earth and weep. I'd love to switch to Nettle Eater. I did not know that you had lived in Scotland, land of my way back ones. And so my, my question for you was, what sort of tradition does Nettle Eater come from? Because it does have kind of this Scottish folklore, um, folkloric tone and and feel to it and and you know on the one hand you could say on the face of it it's because of how it relates to the fae or you know i suppose um but but also because it does kind of have this ominous breeze through it that seems very scottish to me <laughs> well i think that what you're identifying as that um scottish unease um I would say is a more all-pervading thing in British mm. uh, kind of myth and folklore. Mm. Um, certainly in in Welsh myth or kind of Brythonic myth, mm. um, there's that same just um, kind of uh, yeah the the unease um, mm. of of the land. It's not uh, a tranquil, um, constantly abiding sense of beauty and wonder it, there, there are there are things mm -hmm. uh, of complexity and danger and um, varying shades of light and dark um, out there um, and so I was just thinking you know is there anything Scottish in there as such not consciously mm. not consciously uh, there's a lot in there which is more West Country mm -hmm. uh, and more more Welsh in a way, um, in the and, and there's a lot that's Anglo-Saxon. Mm. So uh, and there's a lot that's Tibetan 
because the whole story uh, of Metalita is based on the, the story of Milarepa. Do you know the story of Milarepa? The great I, I, I know the saint? name, but please yeah. say more. Okay. Well, he uh, he is Tibet's favorite bad boy turned good because he learned, this was a long time ago, he, um, oh, let's, I don't know, a thousand years ago, maybe, maybe even longer, um, or maybe not so long at all. But he um, was very bad and learned how to use magic to kill his enemies. And he killed some of his enemies and then he thought, this is a terrible thing I've done. I need to change my ways. So he um, took some instruction from, um, from his uh, guru. He found a guru, I think it was Marpa, after the translator, or former Milwaukee, I can't remember. Um, I used to be a Tibetan Buddhist, but I, I mm. fell very badly. And um, now I just uh, mine it for good stories. Mm. Um, and he lived in a cave uh, and ate nothing but nettles for seven years. Mm. And he turned green and learned to fly mm. and became um, Tibet's best loved saint. And when he depicted his holding a shell to his ear like this to hear the sound of the universe um, and he's uh, he's quite a quite a character wow so did you immerse yourself in imagination to do this or did you go and you know spend a season in in Nettleader, it's a year but did you did you do some of this <laughs> you're you're asking literal truths now about uh, territory territory which is rapidly becoming um, far more interesting and halfway between metaphorical and real. We're, we're moving into myth and faction and um, things in between. So I'm not going to answer that. Okay. Yeah. I know it's very unfair to ask a poet to explain their poems. I am going to keep asking and you can just keep answering poetically. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. let's, do, let's do that. That's a good deal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, but on this theme, you know, um, Nettleader certainly, and then even in Falconer's Joy, your your small book of five poems, there are at least I would I would describe at least three of the poems, probably four, uh, in Falconer's Joy. Pretty much like Merivale, Worship of Place. Dead Fathers and Lapwing Stars. Everything except Falconer's Joy sounds like either you are on a wilderness quest or fast, you've just returned. <laughs> I thought you were going to say on drugs. You no, sound no. like you're on <laughs> drugs, Tom. <laughs> Though, you know, questing is an altered state of consciousness. It's for sure. sure. You know, there's definitely this, there is a non ordinary reality to them, for sure. But also, as a person who leads wilderness quests and has done many wilderness quests and fasting quests of, you know, like doing the, you know, exhaustion and sleeping exposed in nature and not eating or, you know, for a hundred hours, I'm like, this sounds like somebody who goes out and fasts on the moor. <laughs> so, so sure. is, is that, I, I do that. Part I mean, of I, what you do? Um, yeah, I, I'm a wilderness vigil guide. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, certainly, I can remember way back in uh, 2000, 2005, maybe something like that, um, when I did my first wilderness fast up in Snowdonia in Wales, um, one of the most beautiful places in British Isles. Uh, by, by chance, uh, I was in a group that was uh, uh, being run by a guy called David Wendelberry. Um, and one of his students was a guy called Martin Shaw, who um, <laughs> was also running a course there and they double booked the little cottage they were using as base camp. Mm -hmm. So we ended up having a, this huge group with David and Martin running the, running the thing. And that's the first time I met Martin way, way back then. But that's, that's an aside, but that first wilderness fast took place in Snowdonia, which is um, steeped in myth, this, um, this mountain Kata Idris, uh, which we fasted on, uh, has all sorts of potent myths about spend a night on the top of it, then you'll come back down either a poet or a madman or dead, <laughs> and all the, all this kind of stuff. And so that that point when I did that fast um, 15 years ago, that's when actually my poetry started to get any 
any kind of talk in it at all mm. because I had found a place that was um, interesting and deep and true enough to be able to write about it um, in a language which wasn't straightforward um, telling the truth in a straight line way. I could use mythological language, I could use the imagery of kind of timeless experience um, to speak absolutely truly about this kind of stuff. So definitely that infused my writing from there on mm. very much. Um, yeah, I mean, all of Sometimes a Wild God, Metal Eater, and yeah, like you say, most of the poems in Falconer's Joy and a lot of the things I've written um, are informed by that. And I'm trying to tell the, the truth of that that kind of experience because I believe passionately that the personal and cultural need for uh, that kind of uh, either breakthrough or restoration in the wild is fundamentally important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. I'm, I feel such um, validation, but also kinship because it's true when you've done, I, first of all, I also want to say, I love the term wilderness vigil. I've never actually heard those two. I've used the term vigil around this, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to maybe take out quest out of everything that I do about <laughs> vigil because that's so much more what it is. The quest has such a kind of like hero's journey, patriarchal, we're going to overcome nature. It's like, oh, good luck. Um, yeah. So I, so I, I love think. That. I think that that's one of Martin's terms, actually. Mm, I think I've, I've picked that up from him. Mm. Um, and for me, it's, it's been a really important kind of drift down the years from using you know, the notion of vision quest to mm -hmm. wilderness rites of passage, passage. to wilderness fast, and, you know, and realizing that a lot of what I'm involved in is, isn't actually rites of passage. That's a total misnomer. It's about people just going and getting the fundamental goodness of putting their bones down on the hill and yeah doing mm -hmm. the dreaming getting dreamed however it works um and so the wilderness vigil you know even wilderness is a misnomer in the mm -hmm. uk dartmoor is wow. a place yeah. i love wonderfully and deeply and in ways that i don't even comprehend but it's not a wilderness. I've just spent seven days tucked up in the kind of folds of the moor. Um, and I came out of my tent one morning and there's a photographer standing across the stream from where I'm camped. Good morning, 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 lovely morning. Yes, cup of tea. Uh, and it's like, yeah. okay, this is not the wilderness. Um, yeah. you know. Well, even where we are, the same thing. I mean, when I'm leading we drove thousands of kilometers all throughout British Columbia, supposedly one of the quote unquote wildest places in Canada. Really, if you want to get to true backcountry, you need a helicopter. And so it's the realm of the elite. And so yeah, this was the big thing. We need a place with no grizzly bears, no black flies and no lights for fuck's sakes, no lights, yeah. from, you know, yeah. and that, so we did find a place, but, um, but even then we know that, there is no such thing as wilderness in, mm -hmm. in what we think that it is even manifest destiny. We know that indigenous folks had actually been stewarding, whether it yeah. was through fire stewardship or what we would call now, you know, forest permaculture. They, I mean, all of it was, was stewarded for thousands of oh, years, you know, oh. even though, you know, a lot of the gales who came over their word for canada essentially was like the big deep wood right mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. so and, but, and fair enough um, <laughs> yeah. but but we've we've foolishly i think um conflated our our grief about the urbanization of most of the land that, that we know or certainly i know um and our longing for for wilder places with this work that we're involved with which doesn't actually require wilderness mm -hmm. like you say it's got some some really important things yeah no lights no people um, no midges uh, it's, it's nice here I've, I've put someone out on a hill that was midge infested and um yeah that 
it's a whole different they're, they're, experience. <laughs> they're, they're doing fine now. <laughs> a lot of therapy. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so yeah. yeah, it's a kind of a kind of a misnomer. But when you've done that vigil work out on on the land, then you know it when you hear it. Even a person who didn't know that you were out, if you've gone out and done it, you read these poems and you're like, this person has, I've done this thing that they're describing in words that I would never use for it. It's describing scenes I've never seen, but I know this, this state that this person is describing. So that, that's really lovely to discover that about you. Well, in the um, Anglo-Saxon, old Anglo-Saxon magic or the old Anglo-Saxon conception of the world, we tend to be quite rude about Anglo-Saxon stuff, but they had some interesting notions. And one of them was this idea of the, the weird or the, or the word, W-Y-R-D. Uh, and that there was this kind of the nature of the weird um, was that it, there were fibers kind of coming down and through everything. And that if you, if you knew how to um, essentially kind of pluck or twang or manipulate those fibers, you could effect change at a distance um, to other things. And my belief is that when true words are spoken in a, a skillful and uh, magical way, or if a story is told in a way which um, has that same kind of magic about it. What you're doing is playing those those uh, chords of the, the weird mm -hmm. in a way which can be felt. And people who are receptive to that or, or who have experienced states where the, the chords of the, the weird are humming all around them, mm. they've been struck in the same way as those chords during those experiences. So there's a kind of harmonic memory or something like that. That's the image that, that mm. comes to me today. Um, and so my aim with, with the writing and, and with the storytelling mostly these days is to pluck those, those chords of the weird in a way which, which sings, mm. because that will, that will then sing in someone else. Um, and if they, yeah, like you say, if they've had experience, then it will, it will harmonize. Mm -hmm. And there'll be, there'll be this feeling of recognition, that, that kind of, ah. Mm -hmm. mm. I really got that in um, uh, the lapwing stars. I had to actually look mm. up what a lapwing is. I didn't, we don't have a bird called the lapwing as far as I know uh, in yeah. my region but I, once I looked it up it, but you know the whole I, poem about is about this unnameable thing but you just described it and as I read it I was like oh I, 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 I get what he's pointing to in here and and yeah the more literal aspect of course is like describe it but you you describe in every possible way this thing this this unnameable thing that you're describing now is as you know a chord gets struck and it's the weird am i am i sort of getting what you're getting at here i, I believe so okay very, very much so <laughs> i i um i really like that poem mm, <laughs> that point starts. It's, it's, it's one of the ones that i am i'm really pleased with that was mm. a, a good one and it it, it works lapwings also have a particular place in um welsh Kind of general Celtic mythology when speaking about the, the mystery of things. So I'll, mm. I'll leave that as a as homework for you for okay. listeners to go and find out about the Lapwing. Um, and if they were to go and listen to some Robin Williams recordings of old old myths and stories, um, they might find some interesting stuff in there. Mm. So, the, so the Lapwing is is an important bird, and, and where I was brought up, there I used to see hundreds and hundreds of lapwings in the fields mm. and now you don't see them hardly mm. anymore really wow mm. in one lifetime in your lifetime yeah. Oh. Yeah. oh i can't you know you need to write a poem about the grief of that because it can't name that i'm either. still trying to write that poem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I actually also had to look up Cater Idris and and uh, yeah. and and realize. And then, okay, just being totally honest, that put me on this whole thing about Idris Alba. That basically means like Welsh Scotland or something like what? totally, <laughs> What's I, I, up that. What's up with his name? That never That's occurred amazing. to me. Yeah. Me neither until I had to look that up, and I was like, oh my gosh, he's like this, this mythic <laughs> figure. Yeah. What is going on there? Who named him with such powerful? You know, you need to yeah. need to get him on the show. Yes, Come yes, on. yes. Ask him straight out. We're we just, need to know. We're are you a mythological it. being? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, aside from the obvious. Okay, so then the, this leaves this one poem in Falconer's Joy, the namesake, Falconer's Joy. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I know I'm not supposed to ask poets what what is that about, but no, like, you can do it just to make your dad. What is that about? What, is what, like, what the fuck is that about? Daddy issues one. What's <laughs> happening here? Is this you? Who's who are we talking about? And what is Falconer's Joy about? It stands out that to is, me as uniquely personal. Yeah, uh, and and yet it's not. Um, mm. So, as you've pointed out, to, to ask a poet what's this poem about um, is just a way of making them uncomfortable and <laughs> kind of grumpy, usually. But um, as we're having a nice time, I'll I'll be polite, and <laughs> it's it's about what it says it's about is the kind of dull clodhopper way of, of saying it. Um, it's about a man in a difficult uh, quarter of his life trying to negotiate the, um, the complex and uncomfortable relationship between gravity and flight, um, between commitment and freedom, between um, the substantial and the insubstantial. Uh, it's kind of kind of about those things, but really, I have to take a step back, and several steps back, because with poetry and, and writing prose for me and storytelling, it's an act of faith often, uh, and I don't know why I'm writing what I'm writing or s telling what I'm telling. It's a story. Sometimes a story, I'll, I'll come across one and it'll just say, right, you're going to tell me. And I'll go, I don't want to. I don't like you. You're not a nice story or a good story. You're a boring story, which is the worst thing that you can say to a story. Uh, they don't like that at all. Uh, and they'll, they'll carry on saying, no, no, no. Uh, this is your job. You listen. And when one of us tells you, you tell us. And it's the same with, with poetry sometimes. I don't know if there is someone out there who needs to read the words as they are in the order that they are in. Falconer's mm. joy. I'll mm. never know. Maybe I will know one, one day. But it said, write me this way. Mm. And so I did. Um, and I can say that about absolutely anything. But it is, it is a faith and trust. And it's part of my, my deal and my, my apprenticeship with this kind of this thing with language with truth with truth telling with listening uh that every so often you have to just go okay yeah i don't know i'm not in charge here hmm. so i'll put like it's easy to say that it's less easy to put your name on a poem <laughs> and put it in a book saying yeah this is this is going to be printed and everyone's going to read this and they're going to go what the fuck does this mean tom uh did your dad throw himself off a hillside <laughs> what what you know um and no not at all um but i can give you a little background to that place because it's all about place there mm -hmm. um so where that poem is set is um a mountain in mid wales called mount epin um, uh, and it is a place that my grandparents lived close to um, and so I know it quite well. It's a, a sorrowful place. It's got a sorrowful story because up until 1940, there was a, a kind of a community of about 200, 300 people living there, farmers. And in 1940, they were all cleared from the land to make way for the army mm. who still use the land as training ground and fire their guns and rockets um, and what have you. So. It's a desolate place, scarred by um, 
by munitions and the the yeah the ghostly weeping of those people who were cleared out without any compensation in the 1940s oh. but there's a little village uh, just off the Appint uh, where my grandparents are buried and my father is buried, um, who died quite young of cancer. Uh, I'm older than he was when he died um, now, which is a very strange place to be. And when I had finished editing all the poems in that book, I, um, I went and visited uh, the grave and I read all those poems to him to see what he would think of them um which is a thing that evidently i value mm. and that's the way i roll um and it is not totally true to say it's not about him um but it's definitely not a literal truth. Mm. So that one, that one is there as some kind of unknown key mm. that unlocks a door that I don't even know what house or castle or mm. ship it's in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it does though, hearing you speak about it does affirm um, the theme that seems so personal to me, which it seems, there's this thread of, around kind of like the exile of masculinity, the loneliness of men. There, mm -hmm. There's sort of this like distant figure of the wife at the other end of the line, but also mm. distracted there, you know, and, and it just, oh, it, it, there's so much inner world mm. that seems locked in this man and it's like, oh wow. it's painful it's painful mm -hmm. he's in a, a really painful state and yeah. i suppose in all honesty that dislocation and aloneness and um inner anguish of men in this time is is something very close to my heart um you know the more the more I touch in on worlds of um, men's work currently and compare it to all the incredible women's work going on about me, um, I see that we have so much to do mm. and we're grappling with so much um, brokenness that, you know, uh, we're still really just screaming angrily in yurts. <laughs> um, and we haven't got very far um, so so the brokenness of of the modern man is definitely something that I am uh, sitting with a lot mm. more so, more so than ever at the moment actually I've kind of just got a bit involved in um, in Mackenzie's mythic masculine mm -hmm. um, podcast and group and uh, got some yeah some interesting things coming up um around that kind of work mm -hmm. um but yeah well thank god <laughs> <laughs> thank god thank goodness um so when you you know have since you've been grappling you've been out on the land you've been grappling for a long time you're involved with dark mountain many years now and in, in a certain kind of way obviously you're a person aware of collapse you know the converging emergencies of large scale cooperation dilemmas and you know the dominoes falling so was there a certain moment where you just kind of looked around and was like fuck it i guess i should just be a poet this is all going to shit anyway. Like, you know, who needs to make if, a living? Like, what, what did you? That's an interesting framing, Carmen. <laughs> if think, things are so bad, I may as well be a poet. Uh, that's, that's not quite how I came to it, funnily right. enough. But um, I mean, given how we treat poets, you know, oh, it's not sure. like the bardic past in, you know, in Scotland or, you know, where you would have been the right hand of the king, you know? No, I mean, yeah. we, are, we are kind of scum. But also that um, or treated that way, not as that, you aren't. Uh, we, we are. We really are. Um, 
there is still that that um, that value that our society here does put on poets. It holds them in this weird, weird regard of kind of utter contempt, um, fascination, uh, distaste. Um, you know, poets are weird. They have weird powers to make you feel stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's you know, the, the whole notion of the poet laureate and all this kind of thing. It's a very strange, strange mm -hmm. position that, that we, we have for poets. But yeah, mostly it is, you know, that the image is of the poet starving to death in the <laughs> garret. And basically, you're, unless you do that, you're not a proper poet. Um, and I tried that um, uh, for quite a long time. And it was very, very poor. But basically what happened was I didn't decide to be a poet. I, um, I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be um, uh, known for beautiful language and telling um, sophisticated truths in um, eloquent ways in, in books. But I, um, I started off studying um, theoretical physics and logic and philosophy of science in university and very quickly dropped out um, and then tried again and dropped out again. Um, but the second time I dropped out, um, I was living in Edinburgh then, and there was one May morning, and I'd been reading, I'd been reading some really good books. I'd been reading Michael Ondaatje um, mm -hmm. in The Skin of a Lion, uh, and I'd been reading Elizabeth Smart um, by Grand Central Station. I sat down and wept. And the effect of these two books on me and their, their weaving of, of um, mythological stories with contemporary language and situation and just they were so, both such beautiful writers they, they had a powerful effect on me and I woke up one morning um, in 1990 something three four uh, and I beheld, and this is a proper magical moment of my life, of which there have been a few, I beheld a window that I could go through at that point in my life. If I started writing a novel that day, it would make me a writer at some point in the journey. And if I missed that window, I might have to wait another 20, 30, 40, 50 years or never. Um, the life would go another way. It was a total fork. And so being a clever lad, I climbed through the window, um, this metaphorical window, uh, and I started writing. And I started writing that day and I wrote five pages a day, six days a week for about seven weeks. And this huge, great outpouring uh, of this novel that I was trying to write which is all about a boy who gives away half his soul to a peregrine falcon, which also gives a little bit of under story to a falconer's joy. So it, that's kind of, there's something going on there between those two things. There's some complex dimensional interrelation. Mm -hmm. um, and this story that I started writing was way, way more than I could possibly understand or do anything with it was a huge huge story and I knew how to start it but I didn't know how to give it body and I did certainly didn't know how to end it um, and so 20 however many years later I'm still writing mm. this book. right you need to become <laughs> the man who knows how to give this so, right. because totally, how, old, totally. how old were you at the time when it first came I was 20 21 something like right that. yeah, um, yeah. I, I didn't, I, I knew in my bones some important stuff, um, but I didn't have language for it, certainly. And I didn't have the experience of how to integrate some of the, the complex stuff going on in that kind of story. Um, now I think I can do it service and I'm, I'm trying to rewrite it at the moment. I'm trying to edit it basically to take out about two thirds, but being a father of two small children and with um, a partner who's not very well, there is not a whole lot of time, mm -hmm. but little bits here and there. Uh, and I am still in love with the story 
that I started writing that day and the journey that that book has taken me on. I mean, I, God, I thought it was going to kill me. I really did. I just went, by the time I was finishing writing it the first few times, I just wanted to curl up and die on the pavement. Mm -hmm. It was so excruciatingly painful. Um, uh, but um, yeah, it is getting there and it's, uh, it's going to be amazing i want to say epic that's the word that that's coming it's it's been epic already just hearing about the process and i would imagine that something about having two small children and a wife who's not well and you know the 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 years of living in the traveling theater all of those things that need to integrate into that in in some kind of way so it comes when it comes and we all wait with bated breath i'm very excited if, if you're going to try and write about wholeness you have to wait a long time and i'm still not really qualified to write about it but i can kind of point in the right general direction i'm super <laughs> excited about it so as soon as pre-sales start on that i'm i'll be buying by the tens i'm excited excellent excellent so the last question on the podcast is always the same and i feel like i of all my guests maybe your body of work tells me enough already about the answer but you know you're a poet so i'd still love to hear you say it how do you personally cope with grief and rage I don't know whether I cope with grief and rage. Um, certainly in, in my involvement with Dark Mountain way back in uh, 2012, 2013, there was a lot of opening up of grief about the world. Um, and this moment, or these the moments that have led up to this moment as well, uh there is still having had children there is an ocean of grief that can never be coped with mm -hmm. to know or suspect with a fair degree of certainty that what we're passing on to them is either irrevocably or substantially fucked in serious ways and that they will harvest that bitter bitter crop um and i i rage about that i rage quietly and simmeringly um and with a certain degree of impotent frustration and powerlessness uh, i attempted to channel that rage and grief into um, environmental activism um, and bring about the, the disintegration and collapse of industrial civilization. Um, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't work, not that, that time. Um, and so um, I cope with the grief and rage by by going out into the wilds, you know, it's, um, it's a big enough container to, to feel the grief and to feel the rage without getting kind of poisoned by them, I think. For mm -hmm. me, that's it. Um, we're, we're in new territory, I think, where grief isn't really, I think, even the, the word anymore because you can grieve something that that is passing or has passed into you know another another state or another place but to face the you know the annihilation of so many things of wonder and beauty uh requires some some other thing and mm -hmm. it's we can't grieve our way out of it or through it um there's no um i don't think there's any closure on that one and so we just have to sit with it mm -hmm. again and again and again and get used to that being the way of it without it completely destroying our hearts mm -hmm. um, and the thing that um that kind of is my 
counterbalance to that fairly hefty load of grief and despair and rage is is the mysterious nature of hope and the last time i did a wilderness vigil um, on the edge of dartmoor um, what i came back with from that was that it was supremely arrogant of me to discard hope completely as if i knew the fate of things because there is so much i mean the vast vastest majority of things in this universe that i don't know and to decide that i do know the fate of things is, is an arrogance and a disservice to the mystery as well mm. and i realized that um the way i could understand hope was that in the same way that the, the human heart needs love or something essential withers and dies the human spirit needs hope otherwise it too withers and dies mm. and so my understanding of what hope is has changed a lot down the years it's no longer got anything to do with optimism it is just a quality in and of itself that enables me to look at someone and not just burst into tears mm. with grief mm. of it all um, but to go it is still worth loving and connecting and uh, for me having and raising children and delighting in the world um, so love and hope are very much interrelated and just kind of one last last thing just has come to me now remembering when i was out on the moor this last seven days um, in the, the folds of the moor it started to occur to me that what what if hope is a deity what if hope is a deity and so i need perhaps to learn how to worship at the altar of hope in a particular way mm. not to achieve any end but because hope is not something that that is just a feeling or a, a state of mind perhaps it is this kind of active principle in the world and developing a relationship with it which has it more it's a more personal relationship or i think you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um, so there's just this little interesting thought of maybe that's uh, that would be a way to to have a relationship with hope which isn't either delusional or uh, or desperate but um is sacred and respectful and is a, a courtship in itself mm. Mm. i think i know what you mean i also think i know who you're speaking to i think of the listeners right now, their faces known and unknown floating through. So thank hey. you for speaking that into being. This has been a real pleasure. One of my favorite interviews ever. It's such an honor to have you here. Oh, thank bless you, you. For, for me too. It's been lovely, Carmen. What if hope is a deity? You know, it may be that for me personally, Living that question may be the only way I really can have a deeper relationship with hope. Um, sacred, respectful courtship of a deity, that I can do. I'm not exaggerating when I say that that was one of my favorite of all the nearly 150 interviews I've done for this podcast. And I'm also not exaggerating or kidding when I say that I purchase editions of Sometimes a Wild God by the stack because you never know when someone's going to need that kind of medicine. So if you're looking around and your family and friends seem to be like coming to the threshold of realizing that collapse is happening, this poem will push them over the edge and then catch them and pull them back up again. <laughs> Sometimes a wild God is like a mercy killing. It's an act of destruction and salvation all in one. You will thank me for that recommendation and you will thank Tom. For doing this to you. I also own art prints um, by his wife, Rima Staines. I have some of her work. Uh, are you a Baba Yaga fan? Um, or does 
the sound of a piece of art called The Weed Wife fill you with excitement and desire as it does me, then I encourage you to check out this episode's show notes at numinouspodcast.com for a fulsome list of links to enter the world of Hedge Spoken Press. And I'll also link to the works that Tom recommended by Gwyn Maxwell and two great Canadian, by the way, authors, Michael Ondaatje and Elizabeth Smart. Got to give the world some can-con whenever we can. I had not known, actually, that Tom is a wilderness vigil, vigil guide. Um, and actually, my own wilderness vigil occurred just a couple of years after uh, his in his, I think he said his first was 2005. My first one was 2007. And now, if you've listened to the Numinous podcast for a while, you know I normally lead a 12-day wilderness rite of passage called the Numinous Quest each year. And in that 12 days, the questers are taught how to shelter in place in the BC backcountry with only a tarp and a sleeping bag and a first aid kit and water. They're also taught, you know, ancestral skills that would allow them to know not only how to survive alone out there, but also to mature spiritually and return as an adult that their community can count on. And I was leading this work because I knew that someday soon we'd need more adults in the room when the shit really started to hit the fan um, with those large-scale converging emergencies I mentioned. So most of us are not initiated adults, and we haven't experienced the rites and rituals that would give us not only a felt sense of confidence, but a proven competence in a life-or-death situation. Now, obviously, I can't replicate that experience online in these pandemic times, but you know what? The information, like the, the mythological and theoretical underpinnings and those spiritual lessons, they remain important. And guess what? A pandemic is its own kind of rite of passage. It's still a good idea to have some enduring um, information and skills available to you as you navigate this particular type of emergency. So check out the Numinous Quest online under the Courses tab on my website, carmenspaniola.com. This fall, we're plunging into the task of initiating our inner adolescent, the one who is both the rebel and reluctant, the creative innovator and the saboteur who can get stuck in a quagmire of emotion at times. We've actually already begun the work of autumn, but I've delayed closing registration until October 1st. So latecomers will have the recording of the first workshop and join the program already in progress for the second workshop in early October, where we go deeply into the rituals of fall, which are severance, initiation, and soul craft. And those are what prepare Autumn's adolescent to survive winter and become a much-needed elder among us. Check it out at CarmenSpaniola.com. So today my listener shout-out and thank you goes to the 48 listeners in and around Cater Idris and throughout Wales who've downloaded episodes in the last month. Deal! Thank you, I say. I appreciate you being here. Ancestry DNA tells me that I am your kin by 2%. Again, thank you. Thank you very much for downloading shows. Deal. You can follow me on Instagram at Carmen Spaniola and be the first to know about all my upcoming offerings by signing up for my newsletter at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>